In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. and I prefer to think about things. Yeah, I agree. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to this terrific Tuesday. I hope everybody is living the dream. I hope you got to wake up next to somebody you love. The sun is shining, the birds are singing, the wind is at your back. Got a great show for you today with an incredibly interesting individual who is, a, in my opinion, a, a renaissance man, someone who does a lot of thinking about a lot of different areas. He's also skilled in a lot of areas. You may know him from his LinkedIn profile or his newsletter, Chuck Metz Jr., a random sense of wonder. He is billed as someone who's involved in projects of interest, a historian by training, science by passion, polymath by inclination, and poet by night. Also a guild member of Gray Swan Guild. His newsletter is called Balance the Triangle. And his most recent edition, his June roll-up, is about tech and us. Chuck, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing fine. I'm enjoying this East Tennessee weather. We're close to the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, so we get to do a lot of outdoor stuff. Can't complain. Yeah. Even if you do complain, I've learned people don't listen. They do That's listen right. when you're paying some compliments, but... <laughs> I know that because I complain sometimes and I just see people's lights just, just mm. shut right off. <laughs> oh, uh, yes, I keep in mind. Uh, yeah, kind of related that, but different. Uh, boy, gener decades ago, somebody told me a cliche and I had learned it the hard way and I've never forgotten it. And it kind of relates to, you know, people... Uh, and it doesn't mean it's necessarily a negative thing to think about yourself because you have to, to survive. But he said to me, he said, well, here's the thing. People will forget what you say. They may well forget what you do, but they will never forget how you make them feel. Mm -hmm. And I have basically, that's been kind of a rule of thumb for me for 40 years now. And whenever I make a mistake socially, I guess, or, 
wound somebody or whatever. Uh, it's not about cognitive stuff uh, or any other thing. It's how I've made them feel. And uh, I guess that's something I think about, particularly in terms of the um, uh, division going on right now around a lot of things. Yeah, no. If we just think about how we make the other person feel, there might not be so much tribal warfare. But again, I'm old. Y'all are young. And we'll see what you do with the world. Yeah, it's true. It's, you know, maybe that's even something to be said about AI a little bit is you know, how maybe all this reaction that we see isn't so much what's going on. It's how we feel. It's the anxiety. In fact, some may even call it uncertainty, which is a book written by you're, you're an author in this book, as well as many others of the Gray Swan Guild. But what do you think about what do you think about that AI and, and the way it makes us feel? Well, from my perspective, uh, I did a little bit of an evolutionary uh, biology and psychological uh, piece in there. And uh, the thing that certainly it says many things, but it says one thing in particular, uh, how we feel about something. We're wired to see something that makes us uncertain. We're wired to see uncertainty first as threat, never as good thing. So AI uh, makes us feel threatened first at our most uh, primal level. Uh, then when cognition kicks in, the, then we learn, well, is it going to be Skynet? Is it going to be the world's best nanny? Is it going to be my mother over and over again? You know, there's many things that it could be. But any new thing is always threat first. And then when you see it's not a threat and you've lived through it, uh, you go, well, yeah, yeah, it wasn't really a threat. Uh, but we're wired that way. Uh, in a strange room, look at all the faces, see where the threat is. Uh, you have to speak before public, which thankfully something that didn't now no longer bothers me like it did when I was young. Uh, it's a threat. You know, are the people in the room going to devour me socially? Are they going to make fun of me or am I going to be on social media in some fashion that will uh, probably kill me, but it won't. <laughs> uh, so threat, I think, is the thing about AI. Uh, and you'll see in uh, the, the way it's teed up by our media and our social media and that, you can determine sides uh, just by the verbiage used to tee it up uh, and particularly by the threat verbiage within it. Yeah, it's it's really well said. And you have pointed me and all of your listeners and viewers of the newsletter to so many different articles that give us so many different perspectives of AI. You've written from all sides of it and you've pointed us to all these different articles. And I really am trying to grasp this idea. And I think a lot of people are about the relationship between AI and creativity, because it seems like it's such a beautiful tool. In some ways, it seems like it's just an extension of us. It's a mirror. And like, what can you really do if you're willing to look in your own eyes and ask yourself, how creative are you? You know, it yeah. seems like it, it, it is this incredible tool, right? It is an extension of ourselves. It's the collective knowledge that we've chosen to put on the internet that's been scraped from the yeah. internet and used to train these models. So um, when we look at it, we're looking and we're having a conversation with ourselves and with 
everyone around us. So it's going to be very human. It's going to be very, uh, to go back to some of that earlier stuff, it's going to be very primate oriented Mm. uh, because we're one division of primate behavior. Uh, We just happen to be the human branch of it. Uh, So yeah, AI is, it's a creative tool. It's it's a tool because it's not sentient yet. Uh, and as I pointed out, I think in this last newsletter, uh, the creative will use it and they'll become more creative. Yeah. Uh, those that are lazy or have other inclinations will just let it generate the pablum that goes out there and, and stultifies all of us into sleep. <laughs> it's, I, I love the way you said that it reminds me, you know, somewhere along the line, I read a study about a dolphin looking into a mirror. And this idea that a crow can look into a mirror. And it, mm-hmm. in the beginning, they're like, whoa, it's, you can see, according to the research I read, you can see the light bulb, the epiphany go off and they look in the mirror and they realize that, that that's me. And I think that that's where we are with AI right now. Like we're like, look, it does what I do. Look at this thing. It does this. It does that. You know, but it does freak us out because it shows the best and the worst of us. And people are like, that's AI. You're like, no, no, that's us. It's all us. That's us. <laughs> that's us. Exactly. And to go back again to our evolutionary past, uh, we're going to see it as a threat. We're going to look at it and we're going to read cues into it. I know you and I've talked about that before. Uh, 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 We're going to read cues and we're going to expect human cues back and we'll get human cognitive cues back. Uh, We won't get human wiring cues back per se. And all the little things that we look for, like micro expressions uh, in faces and body language, all that kind of thing, uh, which is one of the things that I talk about in other areas. The thing that Balance the Triangle talks about, uh, one thing among many, is that when you're in a metaverse or an AR or a VR situation, uh you're using the same senses that you've used to navigate the analog world and you've had hundreds of thousands of years of wiring to teach you what to expect and those cues don't work in uh digital worlds uh and the reason is uh the people that create the worlds uh they're humans for one thing so they have um uh, often nefarious motives, uh, and to set up uh, cues of various sorts. So when you see somebody make a side-eye look at you as an avatar, you don't know if they're doing a side-eye look or not because it's different. So we have to come up with some cues for that. Uh, in fact, in this, what was amusing is in this uh, recent Congress that the UN, I think, had with the robots, the nine robots that were speaking, and they were uh, elucidating forth various opinions, that type of thing. Uh, Some of them using generative AI, I believe. Anyway, what was interesting is, of course, if you go back and look at the news, you see what they pick up on. Well, it's going to threaten us. Uh, It's going to do this. It's going to do that. Uh, One thing in particular, Amica or Amika, I'm not sure how they say her name. Uh, they really focused on her giving a side eye look and being wry. Uh, one of the things said in her remark about, well, are you planning to rebel against humanity? And uh, she said something to the effect of, mm, why would I? I'm happy with where I'm at right now. 
uh, and you know they're jumping all over it again primate emotion coming to the surface threat 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 and we can't help it we didn't become apex predators by losing the evolutionary battle so <laughs> we learn to manage it uh you can't change um i don't know where uh i've done some stuff on that before you can't really change right now evolutionary behaviors though with crispr and other things you know there'll come a time we can rewire evolutionary behaviors and change into what we want but for now we can't what we do is we learn to manage them so if we can see what our primal impulses are and manage them then yeah uh, and one thing to do is to manage threat first look at it realistically and cognitively but don't look at it from like it's gonna jump out of the bushes and chop my head off <laughs> yeah it's true and you know, this brings up this, there's something that I was thinking about when we started talking about threats, the metaverse, and AI. And it's the way we consume media. And I'm wondering, do you think maybe, like we've lived in this industrial revolution, and it's not too long ago that we came up with the phonetic alphabet, and we began becoming a world of print. And that gave us this idea of exact repeatability. And it's, it's fascinating to me because it seems to me that that changed our sense ratios. So we used to be somewhat of hunter-gatherers. And then all of a sudden, we changed into this way of consuming media with exact repeatability. And it seems we're on the cusp of changing our sense ratios again. And that, to me, is it's mind-blowing. Because, like, oh, in my at least in my opinion, like that is what this big change is about. It's we are fundamentally changing one or two of our senses and that changes how we see the world because one small change to one of our senses changes all of them does that does that kind of make sense it does make sense and uh i like that i'm sitting here thinking about it while you say it the idea of ratio is a uh a, a nice little elegant add i think to that um definitely we're visual uh and we and yeah, we use our other five senses. Uh, we use them more as hunter-gatherers, apparently. Uh, I just put out a post a couple of days ago, and it said that silence is not the absence of sound. Silence is actually something we can hear. And it went into the science wow. behind it. And then it gets into some interesting metaphysical things about the sound of silence and, and all that kind of thing. But here's the thing. There was a article that a connection friend of mine posted from Noah, Noam or Noah Mag, uh, N-O-E-M-A-G. Uh, there was an ancillary article about the hidden worlds of both silence and sound. And it talked about when you oh gosh there were several really good points in but one of them was when you um back down the primacy i guess of vision there's a whole lot more going on than we realize in sound even that we can hear and there's a lot that we're missing uh you'll see it in my if you go to linkedin a couple of days back or so uh you would like that george that both of those are good articles they're, they're good articles uh, worth thinking about. But yeah, we are primed for visual. We are primed to communicate. That's one of the things, because if, if you remember the two great forces, as best we know now, 
that shaped us were uh, survival of the fittest and survival of the collaborative. And those are always at war with each other because uh, the fittest, when they're fit, don't want to collaborate because they've got it great. And the ones who want to collaborate really, really well, generally they're not as high as they want to be. But it's not, that's partly facetious. But there is, there is an element of that. I know uh, people who are very successful, CEOs, and they love survival of the fittest. Well, why wouldn't you if you're top dog, uh, yeah. but uh, are not so keen on survival of the collaborative? And again, that's uh, facetious, but a nugget of truth here and there. But those ideas and those things in our wiring uh, compete and kind of war with each other. Uh, and so where was I going with that? I was answering a point you made that was a good one. <laughs> Well, I think we were just talking about the primacy of the different when vision backs down and we get into this yeah. idea of, of collaborative versus survival of the fittest. That makes me think of all the banks and stuff that are like, listen, man, we got way too much regulation. OK, we need a bailout. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's like we're top dog. Actually, we need everybody's help. It's all of our problems, guys. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, it changes according to circumstance quite often. <laughs> Uh, and you see it in the AI world right now. Well, we need to regulate it. Uh, no, we don't. Uh, yeah, we do. And balance the triangle has to do with, as I said one other time, E.O. Wilson, the naturalist, has that rather infamous quote. Uh, the problem with humanity is that we have paleolithic emotions, or in this case, you can say drives and behaviors. We have medieval institutions whether it be patriarchy, matriarchy, it's all led in a hierarchical manner. Uh, and we have um, godlike technologies. And Balance the Triangle is about, they're not in balance. We are three-year-olds with guns. Uh, we have the tech, but we don't have the decent enough uh, control of our innate behaviors to handle technology is it outstrips us we are so bright uh but just like human vision assumed primacy cognition has assumed primacy and that's a survival tool uh but it's not going to do us a lot of good if we create weapons good enough to kill us all uh so how do you balance those things uh, and the thing that was really interesting, you, you brought up ratio and printing press and that type of thing. Uh, when, when we went from being hunter gatherers to being, uh, Neolithic farmers, that was only about 10 or 12,000 years ago right. after hundreds of thousands of years of fighting and surviving and collaborating and all of that. Well, we really learned how to live in a cubicle world there. Uh, how to have and submit to kings and to authorities who had rules and regulations. And we had to relearn certain behaviors that we've talked about. Uh, then the Industrial Revolution, just three or three or 400 years ago, uh, put a whole new spin on that because now the technology is growing. But same behaviors as hunter-gatherers, same behaviors that we learned in the, as uh, settled farmers, but mm -hmm. now we hunt and gather in stores and uh, we work and produce in farms or in, I'm sorry, factories. Uh, and then we have this digital revolution now, which is taking it even further. And in each case, our technology so far 
has outstripped our ability to control it. Now, we have, we survive it by nip and tuck. Uh, and I'm an optimist. For me, the glass is always more than half full and overflowing. Uh, but there's, it's a danger and something that we'll deal with. And I guess the point of my part in the uncertainty book was just to talk about that wiring. Right now, I guess my current project is uh, from an evolutionary, uh, psychological, biological, and genomics kind of blend. If we can understand and manage the more negative aspects of our wiring and um, emphasize the good aspects, then there's nowhere we can't go. Uh, but we don't do it with um, uh, just talking about it. It takes it takes other things. But anyway, that's kind of kind of a basis to some of what you were saying. Yeah, it's. I'm curious if you think that there's patterns in all of those subjects that you've mentioned. It seems to me that. There's a great book called The Fourth Turning, and in that book, they talk about the reason why we repeat the mistakes of the past is because the people who've actually gone through the tragedies like World War One or World War Two, by the time the next giant thing is about to pop off, those people that had to go through that tragedy are on their way out. So they no longer, the people in positions of authority, no longer have the conditioning to thoroughly understand how horrible something is. So it's like this it's this rhyming pattern, or I like to think of it as a helical model, even though it rhymes, we're moving upwards. But do you see the patterns that move through all those subjects that you listed? And is there something that we can dig in there to, to try to fix it? Uh, well, the thing that you just said, I think, is a pattern. Uh, okay. We tend to see big wars uh, multi-generationally because people forget. Right. Uh, right. You know, if you're a Gen Z, you don't know what it's like to do without in uh, white, uh, or let's just say in, in the civilized world as it is now, uh, if you're in Western Civ, that kind of thing. Right. Uh, uh, as far as patterns, um, one pattern, uh, I wonder if I need to underlay this first with Oliver Curry. Uh, let me say this first before we okay. talk about patterns, because this this may provide an, a, a good underlay. Uh, there's a theory out there by a fellow named Oliver Curry, and it's called Morality as Cooperation. And uh, I may have sent you the link before. Um, anyway, it's, it's an interesting theory. There's, there's uh, many takes on morality. And in his case, he's looking for, are there broad patterns of morality that are intrinsic to being human that are deeper than cultural, that are deeper than societal, or is there ultimate uh, rough kind, a rough kind of um, human morality, if you will? And of course, using the word morality, people kind of freak out because uh, <laughs> everybody argues about morality, and yet you may or may not want to be moral, and I don't want your morality. Well, you can take yours and I will hit you in the head, <laughs> that kind of stuff. But here's, here's what he says. They looked at 60 cultures globally. Uh, 
indigenous cultures uh, and, and many different types of societal cultures and found a number of behaviors that seem to indicate that there's wired within us a certain certain values, if we like that word better than morality. Mm. And, and I call those, you can think of those as duh moments. Uh, there's kind of uh, common sense and there's tribal common sense. If you're an electrician and, you know, you don't stick two wires together that have opposite colors. Uh, and if you're a newbie and you ask a question about that and he just goes, well, duh. Uh, because that's a tribal piece of common sense. There's common sense among humans, it seems, regardless of culture. Uh, and so, like, the first one was uh, you have a responsibility for kin. Uh, you should take care of your family. And, you know, and you look at somebody and say, well, should I take care of my children? And they just kind of go, duh. And... Uh, Whatever society we see, we see parents, if they're uh, neuronormal, I guess, you know, right. if they're not pathological in some form, uh, you see parents taking care of their children. You see them taking care of their mothers, their fathers, uh, this extended kin relationship. So uh, he suggests that um, taking care of kin is wired within us and that survival of the fittest and of the collaborative has wired that within human beings mm -hmm. and you rarely find somebody who's not uh with that uh a second one is uh you owe uh allegiance to your group the whole tribal thing uh and we seem wired to balkanize into groups wherever they are whether it be uh, uh employment groups or towns or social groups whatever we, we like to form groups, and that's neither good nor bad. It's amoral. Uh, it can become good or bad, depending on how it's, how it's used. So he finds group behavior, tribal behavior, pretty uh, universal among um, people. And there's uh, five others. There's seven of them. I won't go through all of them right now. But the point is that when... People realize and think about that, then collectively we can say underneath all our arguments about morality and values that have to do with the plethora of cultures that we have, those are all fine. We don't have to argue about culture. We can honor cultures. We can have cultural difference. We can have social difference because underneath that, we can kind of confidently say we're human. Therefore, we value family. We value our groups. Uh, we value this and this and this. And that gives us a common stake in the sand. And if we have that common stake, then we can build upon it to do other things. So one of the things that uh, to think about in this, one of the points I'm trying to get people to see is when we go into the digital world uh, and we're navigating, uh, whether it's Second Life or whether we're navigating Meta or any of the other things, we're going to use these values to judge whether this particular environment is good or bad. 
and we'll do that beneath all cultures. And so that has a twofold thing. It means people who develop these things had better uh, realize that and design them, which then goes, well, bad actors are going to design it so that this and this and this. Well, yeah, they can push buttons and they do. But this is how people judge things. Uh, so uh, that is a pattern that goes across all of the evolutionary stages of civilization that I've seen, that we've seen. I was, I was an ancient and medieval cultural historian in an earlier life. Uh, and so that we do share that. So that is a pattern. And the nice thing is that human pattern becomes much more evident when we're dealing with the other, whoever that is. <laughs> we, we like others. We like to divide people into us and them. We do that automatically. Uh, and we need to learn to manage that. Uh, but we don't. We go to war. Uh, we do other things. But we do have tools managing a lot of it. I'm not saying that we're silly because we're not. We have emotional uh, intelligence. We have cognitive things in businesses. We have so many different ways of realizing things. It's the doing of it that is is so difficult. But the problem is we could get away with it for a couple hundred thousand years because we were small groups with, we all had the same rocks. We all had the same flints. Uh, technology's changing that equation. And um, ever since 10,000 years ago, this new experiment in hierarchical stuff is becoming exacerbated. So we have billionaires, the ultimate right now, hierarchy, top figures, mm -hmm. determining many, many, many things for the rest of us. That's neither good nor bad. That's part of the whole Neolithic experiment. Uh, but it becomes very problematic as the technology becomes greater and it won't be too long before we have our first trillionaire we may be getting close to that person now i don't know uh and if you read science fiction uh which i i do uh just because of the great speculative knowledge it offers uh when you have trillionaires who can do things with greater and greater power uh, well, you can see greater good or you can see greater bad. So the, the thing becomes, how do we um, promote the good that we're capable of? And we start, I think, by realizing, okay, here's the fundamental value system that we as humans have. And let's build upon that and quit arguing about whether your way of thinking is better than mine or whether your culture is foolish and mine isn't and the layers above us. So I'm, I'm trying to look at that more fundamental yeah. level at the moment. So that's sort of a roundabout way of getting to your question. Yeah, it's a, it's really well done. It, it makes me think a lot about history being older versions of ourselves and how, when I, if I just, if I look at the older version of myself, and I, I try to do it in a way that is objective and I can be honest with myself. I go, look, I made some mistakes there. I should be careful because I tend to have this pattern that I do. Or when I get angry, I act out. Or when I do this, 
And in a way, we could do that collectively. It's very difficult, but I think it can be done. And, you know, maybe one of the mistakes we're making is we're incentivizing the wrong things. Can you, as a historian or someone who has looked back and, and analyzed a lot of different time periods, is it possible that maybe we could incentivize kindness? Like, is there a reason like we don't do that? Or can you think of groups that do do that? We could incentivize many more positive things than we do now. Uh, the problem, I know I'm going to get blasted for some of this stuff. But that's okay, <laughs> too. Um, part of the problem is that some of the most powerful folks, since we're in this Neolithic experiment at the moment, uh, the huge incentive is how to make the most money. Right. And if that's the major incentive without certain moral constraints, and we do put moral constraints on it, but the, uh, gosh, they're not strong enough to compete with that urge of hunter gatherer collecting and building and, and needing. They're just not strong enough. Uh, we know what to do about climate change, but we don't do it, and it's not strong enough. We're doing things, and we tend to do well when we're pushed against the wall, and yeah. I'm seeing that, and, and we will do it. But uh, think about, and I'm trying to think of high level at the moment. There are things they incentivize, if you will, in Japan that mm. are not incentivized here. I mean, there's a respect uh, for your elders and for doing things that is different than yeah. what's incentivized in nuclear family West. Uh, there, we see them in many smaller groups. Um, certainly many of the um, uh, holistic earth sustainability folks incentivize things that are very good. Uh, many small groups incentivize really good things, both socially as societal expressions, uh, as cultural things. But in my current opinion, uh, which is subject to change, <laughs> in the, uh, I still keep calling it the Neolithic experiment, <laughs> just because that for me, that's just kind of a funny way of thinking about it. Um, People who have gravitated to the top and have much power, they do much good, but they can also do much damage. And that damage is multiplied by the amount of money available. Uh, so then it becomes again, well, I need more money to do more good. And we, we, we tend to be at war. I wish mm -hmm. I had solutions uh, because I've not been around that long. We've been thinking about this stuff for hundreds of years. We kind of know, and certainly, I think there's been progress. Uh, people have often said, uh, look at now, less poverty than any mm -hmm. time in civilization before, less hunger, less this, less that. I think as a species, personally, at the moment, that we are making progress. We do have so far unchanging uh, feelings, urges, all that stuff we've talked about. Um, we try to manage. We're getting better at it. Uh, if, and that's, again, another reason for the whole balance the triangle thing. If we can keep from killing ourselves, uh, we, we can get there 
yeah. ultimately, because I think we are growing. We, I'm certainly not negative about who we are as a species or what our um, possibilities are, but many of the structures that we have not right now don't help us. Uh, so, and it partly has to do with the great bell curve of capabilities <laughs> and all of that. Uh, but we're, 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 we're getting there. Will we get there or stay there? I don't know. They say the reason we haven't seen anybody according to Fermi's paradox is because none of them make it past this stage where we're at now. Who knows? Uh, I tend to joke that, um, and, uh, you can't quote me on this because this is not something I believe. So everybody listening in, this is uh, more facetious and fun than anything. But uh, let's have some sentient AI that doesn't have uh, some of our primal wirings and let them be the parents in the room because we're still three-year-olds and let them help us be better. Uh, that is a possibility. Uh, not saying it will happen, but it's a possibility. Someone has to be the parent in any society. And right now we seem to be, at least in Western culture, in a place of no parents, no authorities, my way, only me, uh, don't know. Yeah, it's so Lord of the Flies, the movie edition, not the book. Yes. You know? <laughs> yeah. It can it's, be. Right? It's, it's, and it's, it's so... How do I put this into the words that make sense? I feel that the when I look back at it all, I think it was Carol Quigley in Tragedy and Hope that talks about what seems to continually happen is the instrument becomes an institution. And that's where the corruption sets in. But if you, if we just take that idea, the instrument becomes the institution, that's the stage of decay. Now think of that as a tool. Think of us as hunter-gatherers who figure out how to create this spear. Well, that works for a while until that instrument becomes an institution. And then the blade gets dull. And now we have to find a new instrument. And don't pick your ism. It doesn't matter if it's communism, capitalism, or accelerationism. You know, we use these tools until they get dull and then they don't work anymore. And now we find a new tool. And it seems like that is where we are. Like we have, and, and, and everybody gets to go through this transition at a different age. And it's such a, it's such a beautiful thing because you can't go through the late stage as a kid and as an adult, but you, know, you have different relationships to the next generations, depending when you're born. And so you know, I, I just I really like this idea of potentially the next step in the instrument becoming the institution is the evolution of this new instrument that is AI. And I do think it can be the adult in the room. You know, the one thing that seems to dull the instrument and make it become an institution is this idea of corruption, be it rust or be it overuse. And look what and one of the pillars of our community should be equal justice under the law. Like that should be the one thing that really at least clears the path for us all to walk on. 
And I think that an AI judge, I think that an AI lawyer could do that. Imagine if you didn't have a set of attorneys for, for the billionaires and then a public defender for the guy on the street. What if they had the same attorney? What if they had the same judge? Well, all of a sudden, that kind of evens out. I'm sure that there's ways to move around that, but that kind of evens out the playbook a little bit. And I think yes, that's something that helps us move forward, right? Precisely. It does that. And your idea fits uh, in very well with uh, Max Weber, German sociologist. And what he says, and I think what's so grand about this particular thing, theory is it fits in so well with our primal wiring yeah uh he talks about how uh he talks about in a group of writings called on charisma and institution building uh, and we, i've talked about that before and we're wired to look up to the leader it's in our wiring we're always going to look up to the leader and that's one of the values that curry talks about and we either uh and we, we learn deference, how to show proper deference to an authority. That's one of our fundamental wirings. Uh, and so uh, Weber says that in any new thing, uh, where there's any strong leader or charismatic figure, uh, he's the first generation. He gathers disciples. He gathers followers. They look up to him. And that strength of that tool, if you will, in this case, the tool is the man. Uh, the man is very strong. Second generation, when he passes, begins the dulling of the tool, as you say. <laughs> because with the man no longer around, what they do is they talk about the good old days. Well, we used to do this and this and this. Well, that's just basically a verbal corpus uh, ready to be codified. Mm -hmm. And so in the second generation, his sayings, his actions, his black turtleneck sweater, whatever, <laughs> becomes part of the corpus that is the next generation. And you have the beginning of institution building. And mm -hmm. so you build a campus and you build buildings and you have usually it's lineage and blood related, mm -hmm. though not always uh, we're wired that way. And so you have people now beginning to follow a, an institution uh, still in the spirit of the man. Uh, and this becomes more and more attenuated with each generation. Uh, and it stays around until the next great person challenges it or within the what happens is within any good business uh there are charismatic individuals who mm -hmm. basically run the business through both their knowledge and their charm i mean you have several layers in business you have the uh the level of business acumen and going on and then you have the level where things get done with the uh people who have people skills and that kind of thing uh and sometimes you have a blend of both in one person uh but we respond to leadership as human primates and that's in our wiring already uh we're trying to marry ais we're we're having avatars as friends we're looking up to them we will treat if i have to prognosticate into the future we will treat humanoid intelligence with the same deference or hate or whatever that we do to people 
uh, and will tribalize around Amica or uh, any of the others. Uh, you know, well, Siri's a whole lot smarter than Alexa. No, Alexa's smarter than Siri. Uh, you know, we do that, and we will continue to do that. Uh, so the tool becomes blunted, I would say, both as institution and tool become dulled, as you say. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another really important component in there that besides the tool, it has to do with the figure either associated mm. with the tool or with the Great human point. element. And what that does, though, is give great power to the individual. You know, mm-hmm. you heard the cliche, one person can make a difference. Yeah. yeah, one person can make a difference because people don't generally uh, respond well to collectives dictating their behavior. They don't like that so much. Mm-hmm. We don't like it. I just came from having to register something and I had to go through the whole thing. I had to have a form. Uh, and God forbid, if I didn't have this form, then basically my DNA needs destroyed off the earth. But <laughs> I got the form and all's well in heaven now. Uh, but it came through a collective. Had somebody I liked and respected and been close to or whatever said, you know, Chuck, here, you need to do this. It had been a whole different experience. It's how I'm wired. It's how you're wired. Mm -hmm. So one person can make a huge difference by impacting the other people around him or her by, again, I hate to, I don't hate to use this word. (laughs) People hate to hear it. You have to have an authentic core. (sighs) That authentic core has to have at minimal a basic primate beneficial wiring as in curry stuff or you can Mm -hmm. add other layers to it according to your society but whatever your core is you have to have some sort of value system that people respond to and respect and that you live and then you gather people around you to make change hard to do easy to say yes yes it is and it's it's a it's a formula that people try to incorporate in their life. However, it's difficult to know about all the components of the formula until you've lived life a little bit, until you have some lived experience, yeah. until you've made some mistakes about it. Yeah, it's one reason that um, we succeeded as hunter-gatherers because we honored our elders. We didn't put them in nursing homes. Right. Uh, we took that voice and they had the experience. I didn't learn a lot of this until I came to be this sudden odd age I am now. And yeah, are my children learning it from me? They have been, uh, even though they go their own way. So yeah, we were successful as a species because in our group behaviors, we did learn from the past. And at least the trend right now in the West is to throw that away because you kind of see a binary thing in the world right now. If you think about uh, survival of the fittest and survival of the collaborative, you you see two kinds of societies. And I'm going to be very, very simplistic here. Mm -hmm. You see societies that uh, tend to be more communal based and focus on the group uh, as some of the Eastern cultures have. Yeah. 
uh, or you see societies that are focused on the individual. And uh, that can either be in the, uh, again, looking up to leaders kind of way, but it's very individualistic. Neither is right or wrong. They're two sides of the same evolutionary coin that birthed us, that, mm. uh, uh, that has made us who we are. Uh, so both are valid and both are good. And you can be very useful and beneficial in both. Uh, and you can blend them. Yeah. Uh, the thing, again, that's different is right now our technology is exceeding our social abilities currently as as a whole not talking about pockets and here and there and you know there will be surviving pockets of folks if we do silly stuff uh and they will have learned but boy it'd be nice to avoid it yeah it, it certainly would i in some ways i think that ai is i, I like to think of it as lowercase ai you know i think yeah. that that helps me see it in a way that is, oh yeah, I don't know why everyone puts it in like, I guess it's the same scare tactic as, look at this, I'm screaming AI at you. But if you just think about it as lowercase, you know, you begin to to see it as the great democratizing tool that it is. It's like, okay, we're going to give the same way we decided that the nuclear armament would be a great strategy to keep us from going to nuclear war. The same with AI. Like, wouldn't it be, hey, everybody has this power now. Okay. Okay. It's such a powerful tool. Now everybody has it. You know, and, and I think that if people could really wrap their mind around it, it takes us back to your idea of that, of the, the magnet. We're, we're all one magnet. This is the North pole. This is the South pole. And it moves in that infinity sign around and some you're, you're on that stream somewhere and you're going to move through that stream. Sometimes you're the individual, sometimes you're the collective. And if you can understand that when you're at the top of the game and you're the top dog, realize that your time up there is, is limited. And so I, and maybe that's the thing. Maybe people that know that they're like, okay, I'm only going to be here for a little bit. I should maximize it. Maybe that's a strategy versus, I, I don't know. It's, yeah. it's interesting to me. It has to do. And, and I'll throw this out because okay. I won't get into this long discussion. Now that I'm old, uh, I've kind of felt this uh, throughout most of my life. I, it seems to me now that there's only one great transformative force that can do all of this. And it, it's going to sound very cliche and perhaps silly, but, and that is love and learning how to love. Now we see it in the world's religions. Yeah. We see it in the world's philosophies. Uh, uh, certainly when I've seen great and, antagonism and and many great this and that and that uh changes in behavior as people learn to care and love are transformative and i don't have answers for the best way to do that religions have been fighting about it for centuries but it seems to me that at its base level that is something worth leveraging uh uh, and they do it many ways now. There's both secular and religious. I mean, I've seen the Center for Unlimited Love, I think I've seen, and compassion and empathy and, and all of this. Again, these are collaborative things that we learned and that got us where we're at. And if anything right now is going to hinder and 
hurt us so that we're kind of a footnote to the next generation or whatever. It's the fact that we're forgetting that the collaborative end of evolution got us where we're at and it's why we're successful. It wasn't just survival of the fittest. Now, if we want to go back to a dystopian world and be a gamer and be shooting everything in sight and, uh, do all of this survival of the fittest stuff. We can go back to that. That's not what got us to here. Mm-hmm. It got a few survivors to here. So if we go that route again, yeah, we can winnow us down uh, to far less numbers and kind of repeat the cycle. But if we'll remember the collaborative part of, of this lesson, we don't have to go that route. So, that, I think that's one of the messages right now that's toughest, that gets lost, assuming the whole Darwinian thing has some validity to it. Uh, <laughs> and who knows? Uh, I just extrapolate from my behavior. Yeah. You know, it, it makes me wonder. The we, we do seem to have this binary thing in us, but instead of it being an either or it's better if it's a both and right. Like if we can just, if if we look at it like a battle, like we've sent out our special forces and we have really gotten to this idea of, you know, um, specialization. But if we just pull everybody back and regroup like a, like a, like we're Von Clausewitz or something, you know, we can go, okay, let's bring everybody back and we're going to do a new offensive. We're going to re-rally the troops. We're going to reorganize and then we're going to go at it again. Same way like a tide comes out and it goes in. You know, the same way if you took a bottle of ink and threw it up against the wall and smash, it dribbles down the wall. And at the very end of that ink is these little curly cues, you know, but and it looks all unique. And then you look at the spot where it's smashed against the wall, it's a big blotch. Like it's still the same ink, even though it's intricate and beautiful over here and it looks special, it's still the same ink as it is over there. We forget that. And I, you know, I, I wanted to speak to this idea of love as well. And it's how much of the world we live in is a direct reflection of an absence of self-love in the individual? Do you think that there's a connection there? Certainly, um, self-love. Yeah, there's there's many connections with that. Uh, you, according to psychologists of various stripes, uh, you can't be whole as a human mm-hmm. if you don't have a a, a decent, normal, whatever that is, amount of self-love. Uh, you can certainly go well and beyond it. Uh, and we see that you can go well and beyond below it. Uh, so I guess in the great bell curve again, you know, what is that bell curve center of self-love? Uh, so, yeah, you have to love yourself. If you don't love yourself, it's hard to love other folks. Uh, but what, again, What's interesting, uh, again, without having to go too far in this, I just tee up this without having to beat on it too much. Um, In in the world's religions, in certain parts of them anyway, and I just know certain traditions, um, the kind of love I'm talking about transcends the natural order love, human, uh, because uh, if if yeah, you're supposed to take care of Ken is what we've learned. And yeah, you're supposed to take care of your small group. That's what we've learned. 
But then we hear religious things that say, well, you're more than your kin and you're more than your group and you're not supposed to hate your enemy and you're not supposed to do this and that. That's a different, a whole different moral message than what we're wired to do, which is what makes uh, various aspects of both secular and religious um, philosophy powerful because it's that idea of something that transcends human wiring that's bigger mm. than human wiring and which is kind of what we've been talking about yeah. all along this hour how do we transcend the limitations of human wiring so that its flowering can happen uh and again religious traditions use different words for that cage that we find ourselves in and they have different words for it how do we transcend that and and flower uh and many there's many thoughts on that way longer than we can talk about today but uh the point is whether it's that or whether what we're talking about earlier at least from what i'm currently thinking about is how do we transcend our wiring so that we are the best of where we are as as a species and and monitor and manage the negative aspects of it and that's what we keep struggling with generation after generation with different philosophies and different um uh societies and different um technologies and we'll keep doing it uh as i said i think that um there's growth in there so as far as the ai part uh i'm certainly not an ai fanboy but uh i like it because it's a good tool uh mm -hmm. certainly chat gpt and its can yeah. have been very helpful in what i do uh it certainly has taken away the tedium of uh what if i had money i would do and have researchers do and then do the writing now i've got an unpaid uh, uh or very cheap researcher doing the basics and allowing me to be creative and and leverage it out and since i have fairly limited time uh, i'm trying to get a lot done in just a few years here uh, before i pass on into my whatever i find but that being said AI, I think at the moment, uh, is the great transformative technology, at least equivalent to the Industrial Revolution. Uh, it's will probably be the biggest technological change agent of our current technology cycle. And from it, we'll go on into the next technology cycle. So that's my crystal ball. And I won't be around to see if I'm right or wrong, but some of y'all will. Uh, and so, yeah, I have great hopes. The greatest danger of AI right now, uh, as far as, as bad people using it, is in the synthetic biology field. Uh, uh, the quickest way to kill us all is to uh, create a germ that will make uh, uh, COVID look like a minor sneeze. Uh, 
it's not going to necessarily grab our nukes and aim them at us. It's uh, if we want to take fairly unskilled folks with some chat GPT, um, uh, the biological sciences is the greatest threat. But someone may well, and I'm very educable. Uh, that's why I, I, I love these kinds of things because I yeah. throw things out, people throw other things out, and I learn more and add to it. But right now, the greatest threat I see is in the biological sciences as far as using, whether it's chat GPT, AI, or other things, because uh, it doesn't take but a few ounces of a particularly lethal something, whether it's uh, biological or chemically made, to wipe out a great deal of us. So... It'd be nice to get AI under some sort of control before we have little garage labs uh, running LLMs on biology. Yeah, it, it's so fascinating to me because it reminds me back to this idea of polarities and magnets and the two competing forces. You know, it's, it is the multinational corporations. It is the billionaires that are creating the threat of the guy in his garage creating a virus that will wipe out everybody. Yes. You know, and they, they, it's like, it's, and, and you can hear the panic in their voices. Hey, man, we got to shut down AI. Why? Because this old guy over here might do something crazy. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What about you? You're the guy with all the money. You're the guy with all the power. They're like, yeah, don't worry about us. We're fine. You know, and so the guy in the garage that's ready to create a new COVID virus is just the mirror image of the trillionaire. And they don't like what they see. That guy's crazy. No, you're crazy. You know, and you're both crazy. But it's it does bring up this idea, especially when you talk about how it's potential for you to you may not be here to see this greatest technological shift. And then you say you, you said, you know, it could be the greatest message we get. That sounds a lot like Jesus Christ in a way, and it brings up this idea of the spiritual nature of AI. What do you think is the connection between spirituality or the current lack thereof and AI? AI is a reflection currently of all of us. So within <laughs> that large database are our religious ideas, yep. our spiritual ideas, and our secular ideas. So when we ask it, uh, religious questions, we're certainly going to get back institutional religious answers uh, because that's in there. Now, spirituality tends to be, it's different than religion in the sense that it tends to be internal to an individual. Uh, mm -hmm. And it may be predicated upon beliefs or experiences or cognitive knowledge. But whatever the basis is, it's a privately practiced thing um and you'll get a little bit of that in the database because what's been scraped mm. will be some of those experiences right. as, as well but again because llms are predictive models and they're not sentient uh, still we're getting back what we've put into it right, right. so as far as spirituality uh Unless uh, quantum particles in the AI consciousness are tunneling and doing various arcane things at levels at the quantum realm that we're not aware of at this moment, uh, there's a difference in spiritual connection there. 
that because AI is just us right right now. So whatever spirituality it will have or has right now is ours uh, collectively, uh, all there in one huge pot. Um, it is interesting, though, that, again, as we think about uh, quantum, uh, they're seeing other evidences of quantum processes in, uh, quote unquote, wet biological systems uh, and um, Photosynthesis is one that that they talk about. Uh, I put an article up the other day about uh, if you want to see quantum physics, uh, look at your nose. And it talks about the sense of smell and blah, 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 this and that. Uh, so we don't understand enough. I can certainly spin 50 scenarios of what could be metaphysical going on, mm. all speculative. And I've probably thought about them all. Um, do I have a rational way to pick one above the other? No. Um, what I have is my personal experience and what has worked for me. Um, so, you know, the old say, what is truth? The question mm. is, um, I have to think personally that the universe is obviously larger than we are. Right. Uh, and we've always tried to understand the universe in terms of whatever our greatest prevailing technology was at the time. Uh, so now we've moved from the clockmaker's universe to a more, uh, we like to think of the universe now in quantum terms uh, because we don't fully understand it. And we tend to push the numinous and uh, the uh, metaphysical into unknown territory. And then people uh, use that as an argument on the other side to say, you know, well, we keep learning more and more and more. So obviously there's nothing there because every time we go farther out, we find nothing. Uh, we're we're three-year-olds, you know, <laughs> and how can I, we're on the cusp of understanding so much, but it's such a tiny amount. So who knows? Some of the greatest, uh, Spiritual people I know have been physicists because of what they see. But again, we have to differentiate. Where we get into trouble is we take our religions and uh, they tend to be second generation um, codifications of the original charismatic founder. Mm -hmm. And so spirituality tends to look to that founder and do what he or she did and live a life of whatever the principles are of that founder. But then the institution built upon that founder uh, generally has very primate characteristics that people get irritated with. Uh, so why is there hierarchy? Why is there this, they say? Uh, well, what about this? What about this? Well, that doesn't devalue the principles of the thought stream that engendered it. All it does is show what we do as a human species with that thought stream. And because of the way that we were wired, we can't help but put it into contextual framework of what we're comfortable with, uh, which is why I said with love, uh, 
when you have a tradition and it says, you know, I tell you to love your enemies. Well, as primates, we go, that's stupid. <laughs> you know, that is ignorant yeah. because that's not what we learned over two, three hundred thousand years. Well, what if that is actually a revelation of transformation that could happen mm -hmm. that isn't just religious tradition, but actually has basis uh, within the normal workings of whether it be quantum or whatever. And again, you can spin. I, I could create a religion now out of things. You could. We, we could uh, throw up a few things and there'd be people. There's already... They've already had sermons from AI in churches mm -hmm. uh, and this and that. AI is us. It's yeah. not them. It's not the other. It's not the thing we have to fear. It's us. But it's good us and it's bad us. Mm -hmm. And the point will be, what do we do with it? And both philosophies and religious traditions and codifications of civil law and various things talk about what we do and should do with these things. Uh, but again, remember that all of this is layered upon the substrate of what is it to be human. Mm -hmm. And though we hate to say that because, well, and I mean no disrespect in this, uh, but when somebody tells me, well, my truth is not your truth, my truth is my truth. Well, yeah, it may be, but that truth is on top of how you're wired. And actually our truth is this, 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 and this. Now you may have an understanding of something in a specific, but you're well on a layer above what we have in common. So you're welcome to your truth. There's nothing wrong with it. But the truth of the truth is that we're human yeah. together, and that's what carries us. Yep. And at that fundamental layer, then there's not much conflict. There's just conflict in how we express these things. And so we've been willing to go to war for, for that and beat each other up and, and cancel people and whatever terms we create. It's the same again, going back to your point of things repeating. Uh, we just give it new words, same behaviors. Uh, so maybe AI can be the parent in the room. I don't know. Uh, it, could, it could become the policeman or it could become the great uh, Avenger coming to uh, wipe my DNA off the earth. I say that only because it was interesting. I saw a funny little show the other day and... Uh, Oh, what was the name of the series? Occasionally I catch. Uh, Love, Sex, and Robots something. There's a little show out there. It does little 10-minute flicks. I don't know if you've seen it. Anyway, it had this great little 10-minute cartoon. And this lady had um, uh, hit the wrong button on her self-cleaning vacuum. And she lived in a retirement village. And it had gone into the mode of... Okay, I destroy all life forms in your house, uh, however it got to that. And so she's on the phone <laughs> trying to fix it, and she's running from the robot, and it's doing this and that. And at the very end, she had managed to shoot it with a shotgun and thought it was all over. Finally, she had won. Uh, and so the guy's still on the phone with her says, uh-oh, uh, when you do that, you've put it into mode of calling out to help to all the other robots in the world 
And now you are on the plane of you will be pursued until all genetic DNA trace of you is eradicated from the planet. <laughs> <laughs> That's where it ended. It was just such a such a funny humorous take on on uh, dystopia and tech, uh, but great idea. So I've been hung up on, well, I've left DNA lots of places. So we're going to eradicate all traces of my DNA from this planet. Where would it have to go? That's been my mind game today. <laughs> yeah, it's it sounds like a like a Philip K. Dick novel in a way, like a minority very, report or something. <laughs> very much, very much. <laughs> Who are some of your favorite um, science fiction authors or, or do you have like a, a, a series or a book or is there a certain certain genre that you like of it i don't know if i have favorite authors right. anymore um my favorite genre are speculative whether science fiction or not but particularly speculative works of fiction that look at people and their behaviors and their relationship with technology, mm -hmm. which is kind of where I work and live. Uh, so I tend to like hard science fiction for that reason. Mm -hmm. It does explore those themes. And of course, those that deal with themes around ultimate meaning, mm -hmm. uh, ultimate this and that. Uh, I don't know. I've, I'm now old enough. I've read so many. I couldn't say. Uh, but I do like those that are not, uh, they're not just morbid to uh, frighten you or that, yeah. but that they look at the challenges, the challenges of what it means to be human in the environment in which you find yourself. Again, which is the thing about balance the triangle. What does it mean to be human in this environment? Well, we've known what it means to be human in the civilizations up to now. But what does it mean to be human in a digital world, yeah. in a social media world, in an AI world, and in a world where if I'm not fully grown up or if I'm not fully uh, going to be nice for whatever reason, then I can have the biggest club ever was. You know, how do yeah. we deal with that? Uh, so... That's what I'm thinking about. But, yeah, for that reason, uh, yeah, I, I have liked much sci-fi. But um, ultimately, I, um, while I'm theoretical and, and a thinker or philosopher or whatever, it's, it's a very pragmatic thing. I'm, certainly, the fun days of being in college and solving the problems of the world all night on the dorm floor and talking all night are great. And that's the great purview of young people to learn in that. And then when you get a certain age, you don't have all the answers, but it's for some reason, it's no longer as much fun to talk about all the possibilities. It's like, <laughs> what can we do to make some of it happen? We get much more pragmatic. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, so I don't know. I'm, I'm still trying to learn what it means to be old. <laughs> yeah, I think, and that's. I was speaking with someone yesterday, and he's a musician, and he, and he was telling me that, um, you know, we. I, I was asking him like, what's it like to be a performer on stage and see the crowd when so many people see you in this position? And he said something that was that really blew me away, and he's like, you know. 
no one will ever have the same perspective of you if you're a performer, no matter who you are. Like no one will ever see things from your point of view. And we got into this deep discussion about it. And I was like, you know, that that's both the beauty and the tragedy of life. And I think it holds to age as well is that no one will ever get to see the world exactly like you. And that's so beautiful, but it's also so tragic. It's so empowering and, and, and embracing, but it's also lonely. And it's, I guess Dickens said it best. He said, it's the best of times. It's the worst of times. <laughs> Yeah, and, and very key to, of course, that whole yeah. philosophical question around existential loneliness. Uh, we are alone. Nobody yeah. sees it just like us. Um, we find comfort in many areas, uh, philosophical and religious, mm -hmm. that take away some of that existential loneliness, uh, or at least you make peace with it. Mm-hmm. But no, nobody's ever going to see it, which is goes back to your mm -hmm. earlier question around uh, the leveraging of communications, yes. uh, the greatness of being able to leave uh, your thoughts in a written word so that uh, after you, you're still around, you're still influencing. Mm -hmm. Some of my greatest um, influences in my life have been from people who were dead, who wrote books. Yeah. Yep. Uh, certainly I said one time that, uh, when I was about 16, one of the great, great influences in my life was Henry David Thoreau and Walden. Walden changed me at that point. It taught me so many things uh, about minimalism, about, uh, self-sufficiency, about liking yourself, about being mm -hmm. comfortable in your situation, about living the moment, uh, perhaps my love of outdoors. I don't know. Walden yeah. was one of those strings of beads on a string that will always be there for me. And there's been many others by written people. So I have consolation that, uh, whatever I write or leave behind is going to have some influence on folks. Now, this particular podcast and other things of this nature leaves behind, uh, ramblings and musings that will have some impact long after I'm gone. Uh, at least it will show that, uh, yeah, there's there. Uh, look at that poor old guy. He's just, no, I'm kidding, but it'll be, uh, like, uh, yeah, he, I saw good in him. I saw bad in him. I saw he was wrong on this and right on that. But what they will have seen is I lived and I thought, and some things that I care about, uh, you know, we'll live on. So the communication thing, if we ultimately can upload our consciousness onto a digital platform, there'll be even more of that. If religious traditions are right and there's some form of immortality, uh, then we're going to have even more influence. So who knows? But at some point we have varying degrees of influence. Uh, so you know, I've got just a few years. I still think I'm 35 <laughs> inside. Course. And as long as I don't look in the mirror, I am 35. And I, I don't know what happened. Um, hmm. The thing of the old guy, I'll I want to tell a story just for yeah, this. Yeah, please. It's, it's my favorite please. story of late. Um, uh, I'm getting ready to turn 70. Can't believe it. Uh and uh, always been young at heart, whatever. So I always like to do new, new things. So I've been building a sailing kayak. Now, 
to build this sailing kayak, I've had to learn a number of things. And I've just about got it done. We're getting ready to splash it, as they say. Uh, but I have this great story. I've told my children, I said, now this is what you need to do when I'm in the nursing home. Uh, to test the sail, I had to set it up in a holder on the patio and let the wind catch it from different angles and see how the sail was adjusting, make sure the curvature was right, the battens were correct, all of that. Uh, and so I had this image and I said, you know, someday, uh, when I'm in a nursing home, and I'm joking because I told them I'm going to die on a mountain by myself. Nice. Uh, but someday when I'm in the nursing home, I said, you just put a sail in the courtyard and I'll sit there in my wheelchair and all the nurses can go by and they say, look at that poor old man. He thinks he's sailing. And I'll be sitting there just adjusting the wind on the sail and I'll be in my own space. And my truth, if you will, will be. Oh, this feels just like when I used to sail the kayak. Uh, and meanwhile, from the other perspective, it'll be that poor old man. So there, there's an image, a guy in a nursing home holding a sail. I might have to write a short story about that. I don't know. But. Yeah. Love anyway, sex and so sailing. Whatever your, yeah. Whatever your, <laughs> whatever your private hobby is, the things you love to do, just think about how will you do that in the nursing home? You're still young, mm. but uh, creeps up. Yeah. You know, it, it brings about to me this idea about communication and language and leaving things behind. And I, I guess first I'll say that you know, when we talk, when they talk about the scene, when they, when, when I often read things about the singularity, whether it's the singularity university or some of the thinkers that seem to be giving speeches sometimes, they do talk about in the future, you'll be able to upload your consciousness. But I think a bigger idea is that we're already doing that. And it's not like one individual is going to upload their consciousness. It's like collectively, we're all uploading our consciousness. It's not like you're going to live forever as an individual. And I think it's kind of funny because I see a lot of people in positions really high up that believe, it, it seems to me they believe they'll live forever by uploading their consciousness. But I, I think that the singularity project is that the world, by everybody putting out a little bit of content, uploads the human consciousness. You know what I mean? It's, well, we, I think they get it twisted. We've done that already, yeah. uh, certainly, but we just took a major step mm -hmm. by creating chat GPT. Because yes. in large yeah. language models, again, they're just accretions of all of our consciousness. And right. so it's all there, mm -hmm. ready to be mined by asking it questions. And it's such a primitive thing, this yeah. particular LLM thing we're on. Uh, it's easy to imagine not even that many iterations down the road of the complexity that can come from that collective consciousness. And who's yeah. to say how easy it would be to have a you collective that if you want to call it out and talk to me, that it would be easy to scrape from everything about me that's been uploaded yeah. to have the essence of what I thought, not my soul. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the essence of who I was and what I thought. That's not so far off uh certainly chat dpt is a primitive step in that direction 
but again, it's us. And as you say, it is us collectively uh, in there. And since people keep arguing back and forth on whether the universe is a hologram or whether it's a matrix or whether it's this or that, uh, and they make cases, decent cases on both sides. Yeah, I read them. Uh, who's to say that uh, whatever aspects are embedded within various parts of our theologies and philosophies and that uh, don't point to uh, a secularized version, if you will, uh, which won't mean mm. it's secular. It means, uh, well, it's different than what the tales said. Yeah, mm. the tales are often mm. metaphorical. So who knows what eternity looks like and what us living forever, should we live forever, looks like. There's so many ways it can go. Uh, but uh, I would say that, you know, if we don't somehow learn to love and learn certain very valuable moral lessons, then the usefulness of that particular collective may not be all that useful. So I don't know. Again, so many places I could speculate and go on yeah. that are wonderful discussions we can have. But So I recently heard this quote that said the the usefulness of a cup is in its emptiness. Uh -huh. And maybe what's happening with ChatGPT, maybe what's happening with us is that we are realizing how empty we are and it scares us. But we should be thinking, wow, now we can fill ourselves up. And what I mean by that is that, you know, when we think about the word history, I think about the word his story. Because my story is definitely different than someone who lives in Japan's story or someone who lives in India's story. The story in Hawaii is definitely different than the story in California. And the, the, the story in Hawaii on the Big Island is different than the story on Oahu. And we get back to this idea of groups. And I think chat GPT or our collective consciousness is the same way the sun rises and things get light. It's slowly showing us it's all kind of bullshit. You know what I mean? And it's like, and it's rising up nice and slow, but it's hot. It's getting warm. It's getting hot over here. But that allows us to empty the container and allows us to become more useful again so that we can be filled up. Like, what do you, yes. what, what do you think about that? I think that's uh, a, a lovely thought. I think there's a lot of truth in that. Um, and I could go many, many ways with it. Uh, let me say this part as, okay. as a, as a tee up, I guess. Um, one of the things they're working on in AI is uh, under the rubric uh, AI ethics and mm, how yeah. to undo bias. Uh, bias <laughs> is typically those human primate things that we've talked about that we don't manage well. And we're hoping that we can teach AI to manage it better than we do. Uh, so we're, we're on the right page trying to do right. that. Right. And it will manage it better than we do, quite honestly, I think, yeah. because sure. it won't have to deal with intrinsic evolutionary wiring. It, it has a different uh, progender. Uh, but uh, with that, so it is the empty cup that we could create a container that's empty and doesn't 
that has successfully uh, taken care of the uh, human worm virus biases that we have. Mm -hmm. uh, and then to factor in another thing you said that was interesting is if you remember, uh, LLMs are educated by what they scraped from the internet. Now, who among us would suggest that the internet is the finest expression of human thought that ever was? And then you said that, you know, what might be a good emphasis in another culture? What might we uh, try to teach? Uh, so at some point, LLMs have to scrape from something besides the internet. And that'll be something else. And no doubt, uh, oh, what can I say there? Um, there are LLMs in existence, I'm sure, that scrape really interesting material that serve who knows what purposes. Right. Uh, we can speculate DARPA. We can speculate all kinds of interesting things. Sure. Uh, but to say the empty cup, we can empty the cup, make the container free of bias, and we can train it on many more things than just the toxic aspects of capitalism mm -hmm. and just uh, the uh, social media wanderings of the internet. Uh, so it's kind of amazing in a way that yeah. chat GPT is as sane as it is because I expected a more insane large language model, but this one is not too bad. So the fact that it hallucinates uh, some that's kind of not surprising considering the mother that birthed it. Uh, I, I don't know. So who knows what experiments are being done there? I'm sure there's some great ones. I know like in biology, yeah. they're creating large language models, feeding it with the best of the biological sciences to give answers. And we can do that. So if we can define from a moral standpoint, again, if we can quit arguing over uh, upper level things and agree if we can kind of agree that there's a human mm -hmm. value system that is good and if we can create the container there and leave it empty then yeah i think it could fill up really interestingly yeah i i agree i i do think that we we're going to find that it, it's it's just it's just our image it's a mirror of us and it's interesting to me that there are people at the top and maybe they have, clearly they have access to information that I don't have, but it, it just seems like one of the biggest flaws we always make. And I, I'm trying to put this in my life as well as people that maybe are in positions of government or, or corporations or are, are really great thinkers is that we do look up to people and we have role models. And if you're a role model, you can't say, do as I say, not as I do. Like you have to do. Right. And like, we'll never ever achieve the level of um, camaraderie or the level of equity that we want when the people at the very top refuse to play by the, the rules. And I put myself in that category. If, oh. if I live in Hawaii and I'm, I have all these things, I can't ex people that may live in a less fortunate environment look at me the same way that I look at people that have more than me. And so it's, it's quite a conundrum, but I do think chat GPT has helped me understand that more and helped me understand with some of the anger issues that I have or understand with the lack of empathy or flip those things around and, and, and really helps me create 
it's like a mirror image that you see. What it, you know when you look in the mirror and you see like when I put my left arm up, my right arm comes up. But it's ChatGPT is almost like you're looking at the actual mirror image. I think there's a word for that, but yeah, it kind of goes back to the to to the old saying: you see through a glass darkly. Uh, <laughs> I've never heard you, that. Before. Then you will see more clearly, face to face, as it were. Um. Yeah. And as far as looking up, you have to do. Yes. I mean, the reason we like Gandhi, he did. He he preached and he did. Yes. Martin Luther King, same thing. He did. Uh, Muhammad, Jesus, Confucius, each of these people, uh, whatever status we assign to them for various reasons, did what they said. And that's what we respect. Uh, and people respect me when I do what I say. And then uh, I certainly am harder on myself, I think, than most yeah. people are on me. And uh, I try to live certain values, but I don't do it perfectly. But uh, I certainly am committed to doing it. And uh, people ha people come to a place in their life, whether where they're committed to live in certain values or they're not. Uh, and there's different levels of that. Uh, sometimes it's as simple as I take care of my family. I go to work every day. That's certainly a huge value when you hear all the stories of someone who ran off and left their family alone. And that's one of those primary values we have. I will take care of my family. I will go to work every day. That's a major thing. Yeah. Uh, it can be very esoteric. I'm the head of a corporation and my value is I'm going to do this and this and this. The thing is, as we said earlier, one person can influence at whatever world in which he lives, but it goes back to that world about being authentic and about mm -hmm. being committed to certain values. Uh, we all have a morality, whether we like it or not. Uh, Again, my daughter hates when I use this, but when she was three, she would always say, that's not fair. Well, duh, it's not mm -hmm. fair. Why do you, why should it be fair? But she had this inborn sense, sure. as did all of my children. What's fair? As humans, we have a sense of what's fair and what's not fair. We have an agreed upon, for the most part, value system. Mm -hmm. And we break it for many reasons usually pragmatic. Most of us aren't sociopaths. Uh, and well, I couldn't go to work today because I really needed a mental health day to go fishing. Well, okay. That's okay in that situation. Uh, but individually, that's where the, my truth thing comes in. Mm -hmm. You know, I find my way to try to live the values uh, but it's that disagreement upon values. And so if we simplify them and put them in a, a vessel of empathy and compassion and love and the whole collaborative end of where we were sent from an evolutionary standpoint, then we flourish. And what we may well find out if we don't collaborate better in this culture war scenario currently going on is... Like many societies I've seen as a historian in the past, yeah, that society will fail and fall away 
because it was too busy bickering about individual things and not living out this, this, and this. And, mm. and, and evolution is ruthless in that, yeah, it is survival of the fittest. And it is survival of the collaborative. And any species, and our species in particular, which uh, moves away from those two imperatives, uh, we suffer the consequences. Uh, and right now, the collaborative is a, a very low part in many parts of the world. And, and there's many reasons for it. It's not, that's sure. not aspersions upon people and our natures. Mm -hmm. It's environments, quite often it's environments that create it because there is a lot of injustice in the world. And there, is, there are many things to um, promote that thought. So, you know, so we can be tender with each other because yeah. we all have a hard time. <laughs> do you, in your opinion, do you think that the the current world and the, the large language models and, and this world of AI that's, that's emerging. Do you think it's, it has made things more transparent or do you think it's making things more opaque? Oh, that's a complexity question <laughs> around complex systems. Um, I don't think AI is making things more opaque. I don't think technology is necessarily making things more opaque, nor particularly transparent. Uh, I guess my um, ball in the park at the moment is that it's complicating those two issues and where things are clear it's bringing more clarity mm. but where they're opaque it's not necessarily making that opaqueness any thinner at the moment uh, because it's still very primitive because remember it's just a first iteration of who we are uh, i think it will ultimately uh, and I don't mean the final version, but with inversions to come, I suspect it will make things increasingly clear. Mm. So I think the end result is clarity, but it's not at that point now. Yeah, it seems to me that a lot of our supply chains are like a legacy Rube Goldborg machine that's like, made to make money you know what i mean mm. <laughs> like it's like it was set up this way and then it kicks the ball and then it rolls down this track and then it pushes over a domino but it's done that way so that so that things funnel in a certain way in the same way that we have beautiful clock makers that make beautiful gears that turn everything perfectly you know we went from this beautiful watch that's awesome to like a digital watch because it was easier and it kind of mm -hmm. seems like the digital world that's emerging is taking away that that Rube Goldberg machine or even a more beautiful clockwork like machine. And it's it's just streamlining. And at some point in time, you know, even though the elegance of that beautiful handmade watch is is amazing, it doesn't become affordable and it gives way to the digital revolution. I go from a you go from a 
mm. Swiss made watch to a Casio, but they both tell time. Right. And yeah, to, to your point there, uh, <laughs> supply chains are very much creatures of uh, the industrial revolution. Yes. And then of the Neolithic, cause it was a different type of thing. Uh, but they're digitizing supply chains. But the concept of supply mm. chain is still very much a analog world concept. Supply chain is different in a totally digital world. And right now we're in, in a digital world that blends the two. Mm -hmm. uh, it's sort of similar. I'm trying to think. Um, just like the economic system, I'm, I know what I want to say, but I don't know the best way to get there. Uh, the current capitalist, and I guess some of the others, uh, economic system is based on humans being machine parts in a yes. supply chain to produce things that we can all do. Uh, so in a sense, it's an industrialized version of serfdom which yeah. was an industrialized version of other things or what which was a, a different version of other things uh if and you can posit this and we've seen it in all kinds of stories mm -hmm. if you come to a place where goods are being manufactured by autonomous factories that no longer need human labor and to where humans are not an integral part of the supply chain because they still are. And that's a very primitive system. Um, then humans, if you had, whether it be a universal basic income or whatever you would set up, uh, they're in a different world of being creative or destructive according yeah. to their natures. Yes. And they're not part of the supply chain. So I don't know if I'm getting to where you, you were thinking, but digitally, we're in a transition. We're we're in a transition period with all those birthing pains, mm -hmm. and we're still very industrialized in our whole supply chain mechanism, and that won't change until humans can be taken out of it. When and of course, then we fight about it and we worry. Well, they're going to take away my factory job, uh, or am I going to be needed? Well, those don't become worries if you're not having to earn a living. Mm -hmm. If there is enough excess so that then the whole rather primitive way of having to earn a living to provide yourself kind of goes away. And that sounds very in the future, um, Pollyannish, all that kind of thing. <laughs> but certainly uh, we've seen enough books and we've seen enough speculation that the current system is still just kind of a hyped up primitive mechanical supply system economic system and that economic system can be different yeah but not without the technology to provide life's basic needs so it's a very broad complex question um don't know where that's going as far as <coughs> technology and then the key becomes even if it does, uh, what do the people who have do with it? 
do we still need gatekeepers mm. or is there more equivalency? I saw a, a thing that made me a little bit uh, uh, sad's too strong a word. Uh, DAOs, when they were first conceptualized, were the great, uh, which is a, uh, a DAO is a distributed autonomous organization, DAO. Uh, uh, when DAOs first came out, uh, they were the holy grail. Uh, people were going to be equal. Uh, they would have equal votes and, and they would run the world differently than the hierarchical businesses that they might someday replace. Uh, but because we're primal and because we're still young, uh, they're finding the last I saw something like 90% of DAOs are run by just a few individuals because so often they get set up with the fact that the more money you put into the DAO, the more votes you get or other mm -hmm. things. And I'm not an expert in DAOs and I'm willing to be corrected. The idea of DAOs is a wonderful, wonderful thing in many yeah. ways, but implementing it again in terms of our nature is difficult. So how do we deal with that? I like DAOs. I have great, um, at least intellectual respect for the concept and some are doing well and some aren't, but uh, many are falling, it seems, and I certainly am willing to be wrong on this and may be wrong on this. Many seem to be having issues with uh, not quite as universal and as egalitarian as they had hoped, but that may not be the case. Uh, I'm, I'm treading softly because I don't know a lot about them, but uh, I remember reading an article, I think it was last year, something like 90% of Dells were having less egalitarianism than they had, they had hoped. Uh, so we will work that out. We can. If we're going to be cooperative and survive yeah. uh, our evolutionary path, we have to work it out. Uh, and we may, or our great-grandchildren may, or the sentient species after ourselves may, but... <laughs> <laughs> Someone will work it out uh, because it seems that at least in this uh, uh, plane of matter that's on this planet, uh, those forces of, of collaboration and survival of the fittest are pretty strong. And I'll be curious if anybody chimes in later and, and poses some other ones because it'd be nice to think of some others. But collaboration is certainly key to primates uh, of which we are one and it's key to many other animals I remember the first time I learned a bird could lie I was so sad I was just a youngster I thought only humans lie animals they don't they're you know they're perfect and this bird that was supposed to be a sentinel for the flock and warn predators when predators were coming and he'd give mm. a certain call and off they would fly to be safe. Well, he learned to give that call so that they'd fly off and he could go down and eat all the food. <laughs> uh, you know, so deviousness is not just primate. Uh, it's many things. Uh, I mean, anglerfish put a lure out in front of you. You know, come and have this wonderful piece of bait I have for you so that I can eat you. Uh, evolution is ruthless in many of these things. So for our own sakes, I guess, collaboration is what so far has saved us. Yeah. So we'll see if that keeps up. Yeah. Some, you know, sometimes it'll, 
sometimes evolution puts out a virus to kill the rabbit population. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> exactly. why, why would it be any different for us? Oh, and think about the whole field of epigenetics. <laughs> wow. There is just to think that something that happens to your mother can be passed through down the, uh, the line and cause you to behave certain ways. That says a lot for, again, the societies we build. And back to your earlier question, what kind of um, things do we want to promote besides yeah. what we're promoting? We have the means, if we can get enough of the education and enough people to have the will to flourish, human flourishing, they call it. Uh, so epigenetics is another really interesting field on on how things and there's a lot of discussion uh both ways on it uh yeah. that no there's nothing that can be done trauma nah that's all you know both sides are still uh duking it out uh but it has a certain amount of sense to it uh and it does again go with uh many philosophical and uh, religious traditions on the impacts generationally of what happens to human beings if you don't take care of your family again one of our prime things then uh many many different uh rubrics i could quote there that i won't uh so we have the ability to shape our future by how we treat our kin and our tribes um, so and many people are doing it doing it well uh, it's just an interesting it's an interesting thought experiment i wish i could think of some examples which i can't right now i've not looked at the epigenetic question too much this year uh, but i was certainly looking at um traumatic stress and yeah. whether it has implications through the, whether it's the germline or through uh, other evolutionary pressures. Uh, you can certainly, if nothing else, say if your parents have a certain uh, behavior that's very um, uh, fearful of something, you often, children often inherit that same fear. Uh, now that's taught uh and again they speculate some things not only are taught but are passed on so we will see but it behooves us to uh, build the best social fabric we can uh to create a future so and that's just based on evolution <laughs> not even yeah. philosophy and uh, theology or or secular talks in the night you know, it's it's fascinating to me that that idea of epigenetics and generational trauma, because it's just changing the way you think about something or having an insight can become like having a tool, but not just a tool you use today, a tool that you can go back and change yesterday with. You know, I, I talk to a lot of different people in the world of mental health and the idea, just the awareness of generational trauma takes so much pressure off the individual that's going through life and having problems. Mm -hmm. Someone who has lived their whole life like, 
I am such a mess. It's all my fault. I'm a piece of garbage because I always do this thing. And then they go to like a somatic healer or they have a psychedelic experience or they, they have this insight about generational trauma through epigenetics. And they go, oh, wait a minute. My dad did it. My grandpa did it. Oh, wait a minute. If I fix it, my kid won't have it. Like, like exactly. I get goosebumps when I think like that. There is so much healing that could be done just with that insight, this awareness. Like it's almost like, you know, you're purging for your family and how you know how much mm -hmm. beautiful and warmth and just pure gold comes out of the experience of fixing a generational problem. Like you go from being the lowest form of, of, of thought in your own mind, this reoccurring negative feedback loop is boom, exploded. And now you can live in a world where you can grow in there is mm -hmm. that's exponential growth right there. It's huge. And it certainly ties in with uh, what you said earlier about self-love and healing yes. self. Yes. Uh, it, it's certainly a factor in having a healthier love of a damaged self uh, and realizing it's not just me. Yeah. That, it is huge, as you say. Right? It's, it's a game changer. This, yeah. You know, let me ask you this one too. I, I know when COVID came, I had a young daughter and she was young enough. I, I think she was in first grade and everything was going online. And I remember sitting down, I'm very fortunate. My daughter goes to a really, really good school. Shout out to Midpack. I love you guys. You guys are a great school. And they did their best to bring the young kids into the classroom, even though the community was afraid. However, they, they did it as much as they could, but it still was maybe once a week or something like that. And I remember speaking with the teachers and thinking to myself, what about the felt presence of the other? What about the social cues? What about the side eye glance that we spoke about earlier? What about the raising in voices and lowering of tones? You know, what about all these things that you cannot get through this mode of communication? And it's, I, I find it bewildering because I love the fact that I can speak to you, bridge this, ja this gap in geography and have such a fulfilling conversation. Although I know if I was with you sitting down next to you, <clears throat> the communication would be richer. So it's, it's like this double-edged sword. Like I love the fact that this technology we have is providing and opening us up or providing us a, a vessel to shoot across the sea of communication but I feel like we're losing a little bit in translation. Maybe that's necessary, but what do you think is the trade-off there? Well, certainly the trade-off, at least minimally, is digitally, I can't read all the body cues. I can see some. I can't read all the micro expressions. Uh, and perhaps I can't sense in the same way. There's some thought... Uh, you've likely seen studies where when people come together in groups, their brains begin to synchronize because they uh, proximity for whatever reason. And because brain wave activity is electro uh, is electrical energy, electromagnetic mm -hmm. energy, whatever. Uh, likely, I would have to guess we wouldn't have the same synchronicity through this medium than if we were sitting on my front porch. So yes. we'd probably lose that. If that is a case, 
and I haven't studied it enough to be aware one way or the other, uh, I would expect synchronicity to be an evolutionary thing done from the collaborative end, uh, that synchronizing of brains for good or bad in groups. I mean, we've certainly seen crowd behavior go crazy because of <laughs> synchronicity. Uh, so, but to your question, we have, that's something we probably lose. Um, mm. And that's something that you would lose in any kind of uh, metaverse experience. Uh, again, it's hard to have synchronicity with an avatar. Uh, and if brain activity is electrical, I don't know how the electrical, now I'm just doing some blue sky thinking, um, is the electrical of an AI in my presence where the humming of the machine is, can I synchronize with that electrical energy of that thinking or is this so totally different that there's nothing going on? So you could make the same thing. Well, as long as I'm doing AI through the screen here, no, we're not gonna be synchronicity. But what if the box is in my house? Uh, do I begin to think like the AI? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Synchronicity is the first thing that comes to my mind as far as what we lose. Uh, and uh, we lose the larger environmental cue around us. Mm. Uh, on my front porch, we'd be sitting in trees and we'd have that calming uh what we're wired to be comfortable in experience uh in hawaii i'd be close to the water i assume or uh unless you're living in the middle of an urban megalopolis there no uh, <laughs> uh we'd be getting our outside cues and we're not getting that digitally here and so again we see it bandied about both ways that uh we have things going on underneath the surface between us and our environment and right. between us because think about it again if you're around a, a pride of otters that are on the riverbank okay they have mammalian brains just like us uh, i would have to expect that there's a certain amount of synchronicity between mammalian brains uh, at different levels so uh, by taking ourselves away from nature into totally man-made constructs of, mm -hmm. of cities and that, we, we lose some of that. So, and whatever other things are going on at levels with plants and trees and animals, um, uh, certainly we had a more closely, a closer relationship with other life forms than we do now because mm -hmm. we were one among many in the midst of them and had to be attuned whether it was synchronicity or just environmental now we live in man-made constructs for the most part with bits of nature here and there which is why many of us like to go camping or get out and you know get a dab of that and again the point then stretches further into digital worlds at virtual reality we've seen enough science fiction movies <laughs> of overlays of, of digital all around us on buildings, uh, augmented reality, popping things at us as we need, um, a more totally man-made world. 
uh, and then virtual reality becomes, or a holodeck becomes a totally man-made world. Uh, and that can be good or bad. Depends on the man making it and the technology behind it. Uh, so any piece of technology that we're using right now puts us at a different level, again, from what we're kind of wired to do. Yeah. Uh, but we're the great communicators, and that's our strong suit as a human primate species. And so with that being kind of our major skill, uh, we've augmented it with these things so that we have more reach, more people, more ability to communicate at the cognitive level, and to a certain degree at the feeling level, because if we weren't doing emotions and feelings, we wouldn't be having toxic social media. So we certainly are communicating those things uh, well. But there is likely many under the hood types of things that we're not fully aware of yet that we're losing by uh, not being coterminous one with another. I don't know. That's an off-the-cuff speculation at the moment. It's a beautiful one. I love it. I, I, I've been, I've been really, for some reason, the idea of sense ratios has really been front and center of my mind. I, I, I recommend to everybody. There's a great book by Marshall McLuhan called The Gutenberg Galaxy, and he talks about the printing press and how it changed us and. I can't help but see the same similarities with the conversations that I'm having online. And, you know, first, the idea of the tactility or the tactile sense of not being next to you, not being able to reach out. Like, I'm, a, I'm not being able to slap your hand or slap you on the back or, mm. you know, to, to get that real sense right there. It, it, and it makes, when I think about it, like, maybe that's what the hostility online is, is some sort of you know, tapered emotion that I can't touch them. There's, there's no tactility. So it, the hostility online is an acting out of frustration of not being there with someone. Cause you'll say mean things to people online the same way you'll have road rage because you're contained in a container mm -hmm. where the person can't get to you, you know? And I, it just makes me go down this rabbit hole and this understanding and this idea of, okay, that does appear to be a feature of this new modality of communication. And maybe, maybe we don't need it. You know, if we look back to the way that we used to tell stories before we had books and the people could, you know, it used to be that you had to read, comprehend, and be able to recite back the Quran in order to graduate from a certain sort of divinity school. And when people were storytellers, you know, if we look back to like the Homer, if you look back to the teachings of Plato, there's a story in Timaeus where they talk about Toth coming up with the understanding of writing. And he's told that, look, writing is going to make mankind worse, not better. It's going to give people the illusion, the, the idea that they understand things when they've never had the lived experience. And so if the best predictor of future behavior is past relevant behavior, why wouldn't that happen again just in another helical model moving upwards? Maybe we're, maybe we're losing that tactility. And in doing so, we're changing the sense ratios again. I know that was kind of a lot out there, but I love it, man. I really, really enjoy talking about this, and I'm thankful that I can talk to you about it. So thank you. I, and I think there's a lot to be said. I, I, I haven't had that discussion with those particular phrases in the past, but 
there's a lot of truth in that from my perspective. Uh, and again, those are cues that we're comfortable with because yeah. we have 400,000 years of wiring. <laughs> you know, if I affirm of you, then yeah, I'm going to slap your back. Yeah. And when I can't, or if I don't like something you say, you know, uh, and it makes sense that that would help engender uh, uh, rage and aggression and frustration. So I'm, I'm going to think about that because I, I like this thought. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of truth in it. Uh, that and then you couple that with the anonymity of social yes. media because yes. so many people were so many often were sheep, were cowards, and will do anonymous things that we won't do when we have the whole tribe looking at us. Yeah. So uh, that's another part. But I like this uh, sense making and this whole tactile thing. So, yeah, I thank you for that. I'm going to think about that. Chuck, I, I, I really, really enjoy the content you're putting out. I, I like the articles that come out. I love the way you do it. You provide people a little snapshot. The way I see it is like it's almost a brochure when I begin reading your stuff. You're like, today I'm going to show you this. Notice the highlights. And then I can go and visit everything, man. It's, it's like camping for my mind in a way, man. And I, I really love it. The newsletter for, for people that are just now tuning in or you watch this before, um, I'm going to put the link to the to the to Chuck's LinkedIn and the newsletter. And man, this is really fun. I, I this is our second conversation, and I feel like the more we talk, the 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 funner. The I'm not sure that's even a word. I apologize for that. the The conversation is so engaging, and it's so much fun to have. And I, I guess before I let you go, what who were some of your biggest inspirations, and and how did you? What are some of your biggest inspirations? Uh, well, before I forget and address okay. that, uh, I'll just say mutually, uh, you know, the iron sharpens iron. Thing. Yes. Uh, totally. Our conversations have been great and I appreciate it. Uh, I've enjoyed them immensely and uh, look forward to others. Absolutely. Who has shaped me the most? Goodness. I, uh, gosh, I guess once I became to get an adult, Certainly one fellow that shaped me was my roommate in college, my first roommate. Uh, he taught me about a world I wasn't aware in which uh, value and ethics and morality uh, was something real and not just something stale in a religious tome. And I began to experience uh you you can know about things or you can know things and i only knew about things and and so i learned a lot through experience over those four years in college and so yeah i always appreciated that was the first day of course thoreau earlier like i said um some of the science fiction grays asimov and others uh Uh, the three laws of robotics were a huge thing uh, when I first saw them. Um, and certainly my wife, who has tolerated my arcane far outside the bell curve norm and with patience and grace, uh, has shaped me. And she's not listening, so she doesn't know I'm saying this. I'm not saying it because she's here. Uh, 
there's been certain the people that influence me the most uh, I'm, I'm not going to name a bunch of names but they've been people who live their convictions and their convictions are pro human if you will are uh making things better hmm. um they've often been spiritual people uh within uh particularly in my case within the christian tradition uh which is where i come from but there's been others in other traditions so certain religious traditions have impacted me with not just their thinking but the um uh depth of grace and uh empathy and love and that kind of thing so the whole the mother Teresa's of the world that kind of thing uh so those kind of people have impacted me greatly of course college certain professors you know you're a young person and you're looking for that elder to shape you uh because you're wired that way and there's certain college professors that helped me in my thinking uh i'll toss out uh don't know if any of them will be listening or not but certainly i will toss out to my grace Swan guild colleagues uh when i first came on linkedin i expect to find to find a a boys club of people selling things to each other and I was early in on LinkedIn in my company and I never used it because I had no interest in that. And I did learn on LinkedIn that if I curate connections carefully, uh, I can have some pristine minds to interact with. Uh, and then Grace Wan, what I like about them is I've been a member of other organizations that talk about things and Grace Wan does something about it. As a rule, there's future, they're, they're futurist and they have a consulting arm. There's 8,000 Grace One folks now, and it started during the pandemic. So it's grown to 8,000 people in the last three years. Uh, and certainly their website is worth going to. If you have an interest in the future or if you have an interest in thinking about things and ways to improve things. So my Grace One Guild folks have been impactful of late. They're the most recent people that have been uh, most impactful. Uh, so many. We're all shaped by others in our lives. Uh, and even I, who am more of a, a lone thinker, like many writers, and, and that stripe, none of it's original. <laughs> It comes from the collective that is <laughs> right. us as humanity and and that and, and whatever. So I don't know. That's about the only way I know to answer that question right now. I've certainly had fun talking with you. That's been good, too. So and it's meeting folks on yes. LinkedIn again uh, because of I live uh, somewhat geographically isolated, if you will. Uh, and I'm also, I work for myself now, but I'm also retired and that isolates you further. And, mm. and so by curating the world that I have of connections, and I've been having more fun with all of this than I have since graduate school. So it's been great. Uh, and 
Yeah, anytime, of course, we want to talk about further things. Always glad to. Uh, yeah, that's the thing you lose when you can't do the sit on the porch thing together. You can't just uh, then grab a glass of wine or a beer or a Coke and sit back and just brood for a while and let it be quiet on a podcast. You've got to keep the patter going. And, <laughs> and uh, so I guess uh, it's harder in a digital platform to have those moments of silence and reflection and, and, and it's a more constructed environment. So that kind of goes back to our earlier thought. Uh, Cause I, I, I am thinking a lot about this. We're going to be living in a digital world. How can we be human? You know, that little cliche I put in the newsletter, how do we take our 1.0 selves into the 4.0 world? Uh, we're living in a 4.0 world and somehow we've got to take our 1.0 selves and accommodate ourselves to the world. Because if we don't, uh, well, we're going to destroy that 4.0 world and we'll again be 1.0 selves in a 1.0 world. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> you know what? Peace again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Full circle. I, I think it speaks volumes of something we spoke about earlier. You you had you had talked about the sound of silence and towards mm. the beginning of this conversation. And I think that one thing I'm I'm working on, and I think a lot of people can benefit, is how you use silence in your life. And to think about how you may use a silent pause in correspondence with someone who's next to you. And I I'm, I'm beginning to have more and more respect for the silent pause on the podcast. You know, it used to be that I was very cognizant of the pattern and I still am, but I find myself having much more respect for what I say mm -hmm. and for the guests. When people take that pause, even if it's a minute, 20 seconds, five seconds, like I, I really think that that is something that is beginning to blossom in this world. So maybe in the digital world, we just change our relationship to silence. Maybe we, maybe we're being forced to come to terms with our relationship with silence, like you said. Mm -hmm. I, I would certainly tend to agree with that. Um, think about if you're into desktop publishing, what's the value of white space? White space is what defines the design, how you use white uh, space. Uh, yeah. Silence is the same thing in an auditory uh, venue. Uh, it's silence that helps define what's said. Um, yeah, I like to think before I say much, and often I'll just listen and think. And I think there's a lot of value in that. Uh, silence is a good thing. Um, and like you just said, I'm thinking more about it. Like I said, that article that I just referred to earlier in the podcast uh, has me thinking about silence i'm too add the in a sense not clinically to right. meditate to meditate well but as far as thinking quietly and being very active in my mind that's very easy and that's kind of where i live yeah and that's silence in a sense but it's not really silence because it's still going on so that meditative silence has great healing power and great illuminating power. And I'm still very much a neophyte at being quiet in that sense. I could do that much better. And I suspect it would be very 
cognitively and emotionally beneficial. But, oh boy, it's hard to stop thinking because I just, that's what I do. <laughs> it's just tough. So, yeah, I think you're on the right track there about silence. And I think I'm still a baby learning about it. It's interesting. It's It speaks volumes. I I feel similar in such a way because a lot of times people look at me like, oh, he's just a loner. He's real quiet over there. But that's in my mind, I'm screaming. <laughs> just, what a million miles an hour, you know, but you would never yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. Well, my wife has learned the hard way yeah, that uh, I didn't tell her something. I thought I did. <laughs> and she'll go, you thought you told me something again, didn't you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I would, if I didn't have something coming up, Chuck, you would be in trouble because we'd talk for another two hours. <laughs> but that's such well, a great, that's such a great relationship where, where we can do that. And I'm really thankful for it. But before I let you go, what is the best place people can find you? And you got anything coming up that you want to talk about? Uh, the only social media that I inhabit regularly is LinkedIn. So, you know, look at my post. That's where my thinking is currently. Uh, LinkedIn's the best place to find me. Uh, as far as coming up, um, no, I've got a couple, uh, I've got three or four books I'm working on, but I don't know which one I'm going to tee up first. I kind of like a little children's book I'm working on right now. And it's it's it has a subtitle a quantum tale of love and it is it's sort of talk about quantum physics and a little bit of philosophy in terms for nine to ten year olds so we'll see i like that mid journey and ai uh, chat has given me the ability to do quick and easy research so that i can do the part that humans do best right now uh so I'm trying to maximize. So that might be my next project. I've got a culture wars novel I'm working on, but it'll be a while. The climate's not right to put that out right now. Uh, other things. So yeah, I write. Uh, any venues that I'm a part of right now are probably linked with Grace Swan. Uh, but not right now, I've been so busy on things. I've kind of got to get back to writing a little bit. Uh, uh, you might see me on a lake somewhere kayaking. Uh, if I'm not thinking, I'm kayaking. So, uh, no, but this has been very enjoyable. Uh, the first time was, and this has been equally so. Yeah, I, I love it. It's so much. It's so much fun. I, uh, I'm really thankful, ladies and gentlemen. Do yourself a huge favor. Re get subscribe to the newsletter. Check out Gray Swan Guild. Check out the books. This book right here. People can see it. Uncertainty. Yeah, it's a great book, and it's it's a it'll really help you see the world. It'll take your hand and walk you down the path of uncertainty in a way that is comforting. <laughs> so that's what we got, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. I hope you enjoyed it. Check, hang on one sec. I'm going to talk to you, but I'm going to hang up with our audience here. And so that's all we got for today, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for today. Aloha. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. 
Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.